1: Most of us live in our heads, we primarily tap into the analytical and rational channel of thinking. The conditioned mind is always strategizing, seeking to avoid pain and to increase pleasure. It's primarily driven by fear and desire. This is its job. Knowing this, we might ask ourselves, is this the best way to live an authentic life? Is there a way to tap into our innate wisdom that is not obscured by our conditioned beliefs and deep-seated attitudes? Our guest today suggests that our body is constantly talking to us and that it has true wisdom to impart. Today, we'll be exploring how best to get in touch with this wisdom with our guest, Dr. John J. Prendergast. John J. Prendegast is a psychotherapist, retired professor of psychology, spiritual counselor, and founder and editor-in-chief of Undivided, the online journal of non-duality and psychology. He's the author of In Touch, How to Tune In to the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. Join us for the next hour as we... Explore the Wisdom of Our Bodies with our guest, Dr. John J. Prendergast. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. John, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
1: It's great to have you. Well, you say that the body is a trustworthy conduit for inner knowing. Yes. So, Explain.
2: Well, uh, this has been fascinating to discover because I've been working as a psychotherapist and counselor for over three decades, mostly one-on-one work, but also in groups. And what I notice is as the exploration, as people begin to explore more deeply their experience of what's true for them, very subtle but palpable experiences appear in the body And this was totally unexpected on my part. I hadn't read anything about it. I hadn't heard anything about it. But I noticed as people got in touch with their truth, there would be this response with the body. And and it would be different uh, for different people. And some facets would be more foreground for some people than others. But what I noticed is that as people really got in touch with what was true for them, I would say their subjective truth, there would be a kind of relaxation in the core of their body like some kind of melting and a, whew, a kind of sense of relief
1: that and you could actually see
2: i could they could feel and i could feel now this is one of the interesting things i could see it i mean i could see it in the breath i can see it in the relaxation but there's something about um these subtler qualities of the body that we can if we're attuned and available we can actually feel when we sit with someone else as well. So I would feel a kind of relaxation in the core of my body as well. And attention would kind of drop down, almost like an elevator, like from the head to the heart to the abdomen, kind of down into the hips. And people would just report, and I could feel, again, a sense of being more grounded.
1: So what you're saying is that when you're with someone you're with them you're noticing you're hearing what they're saying uh-huh. and you're noticing their body but you're also being in tune with your own body Correct. and noticing
2: exactly your- resonance really so we're not separate we imagine we're you know we're so separate but we're not we're so interconnected we're in a field a feeling a field of thought and a field of sensation so you know if you've ever been around someone who's really um, in love You know, you can see it on their face, you can see it in their eyes, but you feel it too in the area of the heart. It's very interesting. You know, how does that happen? You know, there's something about love that's actually contagious. There's something about a deep relaxation that likewise is shared, you know, interpersonally. As well, There's something about, that was this kind of deep groundedness we can kind of feel, you know, when someone's really seated deeply in themselves or aligned with themselves or feeling open-hearted as well. So this is what I noticed working with people, that there was this bodily component to um, people being in touch with their truth, with being more authentic. What was true for them?
1: You talk about in your work that we are hardwired with an innate sense of truth. The body is hardwired. What What do you mean by that?
2: It means that once we get through the conditioned body-mind, you know, if, once we kind of get out of our conditioning of being uh, afraid and driven uh, by our fears, there's a more innate sense. Uh, I think it's natural to everyone, innate sense of what's truth uh, and what's true for them. So, for instance, in the work of Eugene Junlin and Felt Sensing, Um, which is something I trained in as a psychotherapist. He uh, worked with Carl Rogers and client-centered psychotherapy in the 1960s. And he discovered that those clients in psychotherapy who did best, he could tell within looking at their transcripts within the first few sessions of their work, they had a capacity for inward attunement. They could actually shift attention to the interior of their body, get quiet, and begin to develop a sense, a kind of felt sense, he described it, of of what wasn't completely clear to the conscious mind. And it could be about a relationship or work or anything as well. But there was an innate sense of the body, of uh, of the whole body, of a situation, and and what was appropriate for a particular individual. So in that sense, I think we are hardwired. We're hardwired to detect fear, you know and avoid danger that's true but we're also hardwired for really honing in on what's most deeply true and this is for me this is really an interesting and important principle now
1: and if we're hardwired for danger i mean i know that in the work of rick hansen uh, yes. he talks about um, our our brain has this bias
2: danger bias uh,
1: to be extra alert that's right. to danger that's so right so you're talking about calming that one down a bit, That's I right. guess.
2: Yeah. yeah, because we well, we need a survival instinct in any case. But, um, you know, if we're on red alert all the time, if we're hypervigilant, um, we're actually going to be missing a lot of important cues about what's going on. So as we become more appropriate in our assessment of what's dangerous and what's not, we become calmer internally and more available and more present. A different sensitivity opens, a natural sensitivity uh, that many people are not aware of. And that sensitivity is more sensitive to what authenticity. For instance, we can feel like when someone's really being authentic or not. We have a sense of that. That's very interesting.
1: Right. Uh, and that, that just reminds me about just attention, just talking about attention. Mm-hmm. And um, I know. N- I one of the questions that you've used or that I read in your book is to ask ourselves, um, "Where is my attention right now?" Yes, I thought that that was a useful question, mm-hmm. like especially if we can catch ourselves feeling anxious or or mm-hmm. even angry mm-hmm. or fearful or some of these more mm-hmm. dark sort of feelings. Mm-hmm. To look at, okay, where is my attention? Mm-hmm. And what would we do with that then once we we know that we're focused on something that's very dark?
2: Mm, that's a good question. Um, it depends... Um, first of all, when I was talking about it in the book, it was more an invitation to notice where your attention tends to localize. Is it in the head or in the heart or you know lower down in the body? And we tend to, as in your opening statement, you know tend to localize in our thinking, our analytic thinking, and so even when we're anxious, we may be thinking about how to avoid danger or you know how to. Manipulate a situation or a person in order not to feel anxious. So, actually, maybe the first shift of attention would be to notice how in the body this feeling, what's the sensation of this body in the body? Like noticing, is there a constriction in the heart area or the solar plexus with anxiety? Noticing our breath as well, and then beginning to actually slow it down.
1: So, now let me, all right, let's just kind of go through this. So, I'm feeling anxious and mm-hmm. then I notice I notice my body and I notice my head feels light.
2: A lightheaded, like, yeah. Like lightheadedness mm-hmm. like
1: like out of my body. That's out. right. And then I notice my breath is shallow. That's right. Okay, because uh, I'm feeling really anxious, and uh-huh. I'm having this repetitive thought, I'm not good enough, I, I exactly. don't know how to get out of this, and it's the worst thing is going to happen, so that's my thought going exactly. round and round. Right. So, <laughs> now, what, now what, John? <laughs> now what, okay.
2: So, we, we have a good start, because we have a couple of components here. One is the emotion, anxiety. Another is the sensation, kind of noticing where it is in the body. And another is the belief that's, that's going with that. Those are kind of the three main components of our, of our experience, thought, feeling, and sensation. So when I work with people, um, I usually start with sensation. Right? It's like, okay, notice how you experience that in the body. And just give your attention to that. And actually begin to gently breathe into that. Like, so you're beginning to explore with your attention, going into the sensation of it, not to change it, actually, but to be more intimate with it, to get to know it better, to feel it. And of course, generally, we do the opposite. You know, our attention is like, how do I get out of here? And so this is like, how do you know, it's like, how do I become more intimate? How do I become more familiar with this experience? So we lean in to the experience, let's say our anxiety. Maybe we notice a knot you know, in our heart area or our solar plexus. So I invite people to, okay, just breathe into that and feel into that and tolerate the emotion and the sensation just for a couple of minutes, like two or three minutes. And then... Which may
1: seem like a lifetime. (laughs)
2: And can be radically different, you know, a different approach for some people, just to tolerate the feeling and sensation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's enough by itself. It'll just start melting, you know. But if it doesn't, I'll ask another question which is, is there a belief that's associated with this sensation and this feeling? Let's say it's anxiety. And maybe it was one of the ones that you suggested. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be loved or accepted, you know, for who I am. You know, and terrible things will come of that. In which case, uh, I invite people, once they've kind of sensed, and felt what's there to begin to question that belief in a particular way. And I write about that in the book Mm -hmm. as well. And we can maybe talk about that at another point, but an inquiry, a heartfelt inquiry into what's really the truth of this belief, not going to the mind to ask, but actually resting attention in the heart because there's a heart wisdom that we Mm -hmm. have. There's a deep, quiet knowing that's often overheard and overlooked. And if we can start listening here, a whole nother and a world of knowing begins to open.
1: I want to talk more deeply uh, about that in just one moment, but I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. John J. Prendergast, and he's the author of In Touch, How to Tune Into the Inner Wisdom of Your Body and Trust Yourself. And if you want to be in touch with his work, you can go to his website, which is listeningfromsilence.com. That's listeningfromsilence.com. And I want to spell his last name for you, just uh, for listeners who are listening and want to look him up on the Internet. It's Prendergast, P-R-E-N-D-E-R-G-A-S-T. You can also get to his website through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm here with Dr. John J. Prendergast, and he is the author of In Touch, How to Tune Into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. And John, we're, we're talking about that feeling into our body when we're feeling anxious or fearful or, or some other dark emotion. And I know that you give a really wonderful example of some someone that you've worked with and it was someone who was talking about um he was using a metaphor for his life he said i'm i'm like on this plateau and i'm facing and there's this deep gorge in front of me and then across from it is another plateau and he suggested for himself that okay so i'm going to develop wings and i'm going <laughs> to fly over this gorge and you give him some different advice. And, and And what was the outcome of that advice?
2: Well, it was a, it was a beautiful um, you know, example of sort of a, a counterintuitive <laughs> to the strategic mind um, intervention. Because he said, I want to be on the other side, and I don't know how. Maybe I, I can grow wings or something. It was sort of a fanciful statement. And I actually invited him simply to be the abyss. Be the abyss. And uh, he was startled and then he kind of, he agreed and he felt into this, which he felt he could not cross, right, to just be it. And it was beautiful because um, the whole story dissolved and rather than feeling like a deeply wounded being, he felt deeply grounded and deeply at home in himself. And he said, you know, there's, there are no wounds here. And what he touched really was the ground of being, I would say, by facing and embracing what looked like emptiness to his conditioned mind.
1: So when you say ground of being, that just reminds me, in many of our spiritual practices, we're going for that which is transcendent. We're, we're going upward, like Up to, to, to leave the body. Yes. And um, I, I know that you talk about Waking up and waking down. Yes. So the waking down, okay, well that, that, that deserves some further uh, explanation.
2: Yeah, well, this is a term actually that was coined by Samuel Bonder, and I want to give him credit for that. And when I heard it, it really made sense to me, and it corresponded with my own experience and the experience of others as well. So to put it in context, waking up is a letting go of who we thought we were and who we felt we were and uh, letting go of our conventional and familiar identities, and feeling ourselves really as infinite, open, spacious awareness. And this is often um, the first step in an awakening process. And so there's a, the hallmark of it is a tremendous sense of freedom, actually, and spaciousness. But many people stop there. They think, like, great, I'm free, you know, and that's it. Well, there's something, a little something left over, which is called my life. <laughs> and and my body and the world.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes, a small thing there. Some
2: (laughs) small thing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of rude awakenings then when this transcendent freedom meets ordinary life and experience. And so this this is the waking down experience. It's like to embody this awareness. It's like for our actions, our thoughts and feelings to become increasingly congruent with our inner knowing and sense of inner freedom, and this generally is is a lifetime process, and uh, one that will show up in relationships. This is an area where spiritual seekers have a lot of difficulty transposing this kind of transcendent freedom, you know, to the you know this um, difficult, right. often field of, of interpersonal relationships. So waking down is like it's as if awareness begins to. Um, saturate the body from the top down. It comes down through the head so we're no longer identified so much with our thinking and our stories. It comes down into the emotional level of the heart so that our feelings are more and more congruent with the sense of being. And then finally into um, the hara or the lower abdomen so that our instinct instincts and instinctual identifications also begin to relax into this sense of being. So that's the waking down process. And, and as this awakening deepens through the body, it also opens up out. It radiates out uh, into our relationships and into what we call the world as well so that we feel much more intimate, actually, and engaged. Uh, and the world takes on a much different feel uh, than when we take ourselves as a separate self.
1: Okay, Jen, I'd like to talk about some of the reasons that we might not want to tune in to our inner wisdom, our inner knowing, mm-hmm. some of the reasons that, mm-hmm. that this might be, to coin, I think, Al Gore's, an inconvenient truth. <laughs> uh,
2: absolutely. Well, there, you know, if it were so easy, it would be very common, actually. I think it's becoming more common, but nonetheless, there's enormous resistance to this um, for a lot of reasons, I think. Uh, One of them is we're terrified of the unknown, you know, and as we were talking about earlier in terms of hardwiring, you know, for vigilance, we want to know what's going on, you know, in order to have a sense of control, in order to survive. So we're very wired, the the conditioned mind and the conditioned body mind is very wired to be vigilant in this way. And this process of awakening discovering who we really are, what our true nature is, is almost in the opposite direction. It's a letting go of what's known. It's a letting go of being in control or what we imagine to be in control of. And it's a surrender, you know, to this unknown, open awareness. So there's enormous resistance. And there's actually um, a lot of terror around that. I, I find when I work with people, this whole surrendering and letting go process can be very frightening. Uh, to people for the reasons that... Um,
1: well, it, it might affect our marriage.
2: <laughs> this is it. I'm glad you yeah, mentioned it. So in terms of it's not only is it terrifying individually, but our lives will transform. And those aspects of our lives that are not congruent with our, our, this unfolding discovery of our being, you know, will begin to change. You know, they'll either change or they'll end. And so if we're in work, really, that's not in integrity, you know, we can no longer do it. If we're in a relationship that's not in integrity with our deeper self, that will either require work and change, or whether it's a friendship or, you know, a, a partner, that will also change. And that's frightening to people. And people are very afraid of losing connection. Say more. And this is one of the res- most common forms of resistance. It's like, if I really trust myself, if I'm really authentic, you know, and, stout, and true, uh, tell the truth to myself and others... I will alienate people. you know. They won't want to be with me. Um, and I'll be increasingly alone.
1: Well, isn't there a way of telling the truth to others that can be more skillful? Absolutely. Than, uh, yeah, I mean, we,
2: we can do it more skillfully. But this is just a fear that comes up. Yes. If, if, and to say a word about that, as children, we make a kind of unconscious Faustian bargain. To be safe and to be loved, we give up we abandon our sense of authenticity and then that carries into our relationships and our lives for the rest of our life we feel like if i'm true to myself you know i will not be loved i will not belong it's very core issue even if it's not rational and
1: it it almost feels like the original sin
2: it, it's the original ignorance I would say we're ignoring our true nature. We abandon ourselves in order to belong and connect, but this kind of connection is relatively superficial, you know. Just like we'll hang on to friendships even though there's not an alive or authentic nature to it, out of habit, you know, and out of fear of aloneness. So the fear of aloneness, the fear of isolation, the fear of disconnection. So we're very social beings.
1: So fear of abandonment is a huge one in. Human culture, I guess.
2: Absolutely, fear of abandonment and fear of attack, mm-hmm. right? And and or both, yeah. You know, or, or also uh, engulfment is another major one. Mm-hmm. It's like and this is more children feeling engulfed by a narcissistic parent as well. And all of that, all of these create templates in the psyche that are then projected onto reality, onto the world in general, but also onto the unknown. So it's very interesting when children have experienced trauma or attachment. Disorders or so on. And as adults, they begin this kind of unpacking process and letting go process. You know, they start encountering, you know, these deep fears of abandonment, Mm -hmm. of attack, of engulfment as well. Fears of annihilation, basically. That's what we're talking about. And so this is um, a challenging process, and you have to really either be suffering a lot or really love the truth.
1: Would you suggest that it's always good to have some sort of guide in this process?
2: It's generally helpful, I would say, but not necessary. I mean, people, people just crash through this on their own. Uh, and kind of find out afterwards that, oh my God, there's a whole teaching here <laughs> and teachers. Do, do you but find, it's easier to have a teacher. Do you find,
1: Jan, John, when, when, um, when, let's say, we're just with friends, they're not professionally uh, educated to, to this process, but mm-hmm. when we are witnessed deeply, deeply witnessed yes. as to our authentic self, yes. like like circle work is, is one of yes. the ways that has this. That's right. Then we, then Then we might find ourselves being uh, supported to be more of that.
2: Yes, exactly. So we can, it doesn't require like just one on one with a teacher. It could be a circle of people who are dedicated to being authentic. And this is the interesting thing this witnessing is like to be deeply seen, you know, is such a deep human need, isn't it? And when we do feel deeply seen, it's like we start to radiate, right? Some deeper, you know, truth actually um, begins to radiate as well. And we can feel that. So it's very helpful, you know, wherever that witnessing is coming from. And also people who can point out our blind spots, right? Where we get stuck, where we're defended as well. So, you know, that could be a spiritual teacher. That could be a friend. That could be a psychotherapist who has a, you know, sensitive, deep understanding. It could be a family member. You know, anyone can provide that kind of mirroring as well. The point is not who does it, but the functioning.
1: I I remember like doing I, I do a lot of circle work and mm-hmm. um, yeah I might go into something uh, I'm talking about something and and suddenly there's laughter in the room yes and it's like waking up shaking my head and looking around and saying why are you laughing mm-hmm. and they're all they all see me going into some old pattern. An old pattern. And they they recognize it, but they do it, they feed it back to me with such loving humor. Yes. And that's that's a beautiful gift we have for each other. It is a beautiful,
2: isn't it? Yeah, and there's something beautiful about circles you know i there's just something uh, i like the egalitarian form of it i like the circular form it's like when i when i teach i prefer to do it in circles and i really encourage people's voices to be expressed and so and it is beautiful when there's that kind of shared shared group intelligence and wisdom and heart that comes forward you know if there is a clear intention you know with a group as well that's important that focus. right that
1: that that people who can put to put aside their personal judgments, That's or right. at least acknowledge them. Yeah, bracket yeah. them if yeah. they can't suspend yeah. Yeah. them. Exactly. That's right. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. John J. Prendergast, and he's the author of In Touch, How to Tune Into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. And if you want to be in touch with him, you can go to his website, it is listening from silence.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. John J. Prendergast and he's the author of In Touch How to Tune into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. John, you talk about something uh, about reducing our inner noise. Uh-huh. I kind of, I like that, that inner static inside. Um, uh-huh. You, you might, you, you say that often with your clients, you might ask them to give, give you a weather, inner weather report. Right. So what, how would one reduce the inner noise and, and, report on the local weather?
2: Uh, well, um, you know, as with felt sensing, the inner weather report can vary widely <laughs> in terms of people's capacity to do that. Um, I, I do use the analogy of um, attunement a lot, like tuning into something that's already here and, and kind of hearing the signal. And then the question is, what gets in the way of that? And again, using the same metaphor, there's some kind of noise in the system, and the noises are conditioned body-mind. And that takes the form of, um, it can be uh, limiting beliefs, what we might call negative beliefs about ourselves, core negative beliefs. It can take the form of uh, reactive feelings and somatic contractions. Contraction means like, you know, a tight fist, something feeling contracted uh, in the interior of the body. So the question is how to be with that in a way that helps reduce the noise.
1: Well, I would say, I would say like, like if... Y- You asked me, maybe not in this moment, but you asked me in a maybe before the interview, what is your inner weather, Justine? I would Uh say, Well, I feel tense. I feel um, Mm -hmm. anxious about. Uh You know, it feels a little bit stormy. It's not a hurricane, but it's yeah. it's a little stormy because mm-hmm. I don't know the outcome of this interview. I've right. never met this man face to face, so uh, uh-huh. I hope it'll go well. So these are this would be kind of some of my local weather There's in your, that moment. That's right.
2: That's your local weather in the moment, and that's where we would start. And so I might say, okay, so where is attention wanting to go in this moment? In terms of now that we have a kind of, you know, sense, overall sense, you know, and and you might say hypothetically, okay, well, I, you know, I feel I'm interested in this anxiety or this tension. And then, you know, there's like a wisdom of like Mm -hmm. where attention needs to go in the weather system Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, because the mind may think, well, I should go to anger, but maybe there's fear there beneath the anger that we find our attention going to. A lot of it is being intimate, actually. With the, with the present experience being, we might say, experience nearer, with sensations and feelings, and the other is to do deep inquiry into those beliefs. And, and, and the seeing through of those beliefs actually allows a letting go of them. Beliefs are very important. Mm-hmm. They actually um, affect, subconscious beliefs affect uh, most of our reactive feelings and somatic contractions. So I work a lot with that, um, with people.
1: Um, how, how do we uncover our beliefs?
2: Well, uh, the ones we're interested in are the limiting ones. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the ones that really constrict us. Um, and uh, I, I have a extremely simplistic way of doing it, which is I just ask people sometimes, "What do you think's wrong with you?" <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be amazed, you know, what people come up with. You know, they'll have a long list. Uh-huh. You know, and they may rattle them off, and I'll say, "Which which one's the most important?" You know, and 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 they may think about it and say you know they usually get to one a variation of one or two one is i'm lack something's lacking deficiency i'm not enough of this or that i'm just not enough and the other is i'm bad i'm flawed something's wrong with me and i've called these kind of the grandmother and grandfather of core beliefs so actually distilling it down into a very simple sentence is helpful and then checking is that resonant does that really say what i think and you can tell if it does cuz there's like a reaction you know when you think like I'm really screwed up. And there's like, you know, there's Mm -hmm. always a contraction and, and, you know, some feeling of low self-esteem or loathing or whatever it may be, depending on the thought. And then to actually bring attention to the heart area and ask, what's my deepest knowing about this? And then be quiet. Don't go to the mind for an answer. It's like just, and, and a response, some kind of response will come. It may come as an image, it may come as a word, it may come as a, a feeling in the body. But when there's a heartfelt inquiry of this kind, there's a letting go that happens. There's a seeing through of that belief. There's a knowing, that's not really true. And then there's a kind of release that happens, and then the noise reduces. Mm. Right? So we use, actually, you know, this heart wisdom, which really comes from the ground of being and the heart of being, uh, as a, a profound resource. You know, to meet our conditioned body-mind and help it come into accord with its deeper nature.
1: So, uh, so let's talk about your, your, that deeper, that wisdom of the heart, the, the deeper knowing, the mm-hmm. inner knowing. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the obstacles to it, um, the what you call the impostors. Mm. You know, that, um, like, uh, I think you mentioned hunches and Uh, intuition and attachment mm -hmm. to outcome or the need to control. These are some of these obstacles. And and
2: basically, they they come down into two categories. One is fear, and the other is desire. Fear and desire obstructs our inner knowing. So... You know, you want to know, uh, how's my favorite team doing? <laughs> you know, you have a desire, you know, for them to win. So you're, you know, that can, you know, get in touch. I mean, not that this is about predicting right. outcomes. That's, exactly. that's kind of a poor example. But <clears throat> usually it's our fear, you know, uh, and and that just keeps us in the conditioned minds and keeps us from deeply listening. So,
1: so how do we know that we're in fear rather than deep oh, inquiry?
2: Okay, so... One of the ways we know we're in fear is our, our attention tends to localize in the head. Ah. We're up in our thinking mind, trying, strategizing, doing our you know, cost-benefit analysis you know, or risk assessment. What should I do? You know? and, and we begin to recognize all our kind of strategies for handling a situation. And, and there's a kind of argument that goes on on that level, you know, pro and con. The inner knowing is very quiet. You know, it's that small, still voice that's been described you know, in many different traditions. And it tends to uh, localize uh, in the heart area, although it's not, uh, it can be felt anywhere deep inside. And it's just much quieter, and it doesn't insist on anything. It doesn't assert, it doesn't insist, uh, it doesn't judge as well.
1: So that's where, where, um, and you talk about major ways that we can get in touch with our knowing, that's where um, we we go to a kind of relaxation, a yeah. uh, uh, relaxed groundedness. That's right. So yeah. can you say something about that?
2: Well, it's like the more um, the more settled we are internally, the less noise in that sense. The more grounded we are, the more just present uh, we are, um, the more available we are, attention is actually free to listen to this inner knowing as well. And And sometimes, you know, we can just sit with a question and in that kind of relaxed state
1: so I kind of think of it too as even the way we sit when we're really when we're asking the question Mm -hmm. and we really are open yes to knowing the answer we're ready to just say okay I just don't know I don't know how to get out of this and if we just stop ourselves for a moment and I, I can just feel and I'm doing it right now you're doing it now aren't you straightening up our spine there you go leaning back Lowering our shoulders, there taking a, a deep breath. Well,
2: there you go. That's it. So there's it's, it's interesting, that kind of straightening up, that's the inner alignment, you know, and you're, you're grounding.
1: And that's one of the uh, one ways of, to be in touch with this inner markers. markers. Yeah,
2: those are one of the markers. So you just went right there. Inner alignment. Inner alignment. And you just you just did it, and you were aware you were doing it. There was a relaxation, a grounding, and inner alignment. There was kind of a letting go, wasn't there? It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, right? There's a surrender, there a kind of humility, actually. I don't know, you know. Show me, you know. I'm open, you know.
1: So it's not only asking the question in our head; it's 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 moving the question into our body. That's right. Too.
2: That's right. So we so that's why I talk about just letting attention rest in the heart, mm-hmm. very innocently, as well, and quietly. And mm-hmm. a response usually a response comes pretty quickly. And, but it may not be what the conscious mind is looking for. You know, it may be an unexpected image, for instance. It may be a subtle inclination to move. You know, but the interesting thing is all we need to know is the next step.
1: Oh, just the next little connected step. <laughs> it it doesn't all. have to be great leaps. No,
2: just the next little step. Is all we need to know. The mind thinks it needs to know everything. Mm. Right in order to be needs safe. It needs to
1: know the final outcome and what it's gonna look like and, and this everything, is but, the
2: arrogance of the mind. Right. You know, but it's also the conditioning of the mind. You know so we don't need to judge it.
1: Even mindfulness training has become a kind of commodity these days yes, and, yeah. and very goal-oriented. I'm going to do my mindfulness practice so that I can be a
2: more efficient more whatever. Fit, right? That's right. And
1: you suggest that that mindfulness training might uh, we might look at it in a different way Well,
2: you know I think uh, mindfulness is actually quite a beneficial practice, and, and I, I'm very glad that it's, you know, in the public mind now. However, uh, it's not, um, for me, I, I it feels to me more like heartfulness than mindfulness. Um, although, you know, the actual experience of mindfulness can be very heartful, but the word mind is a little uh, misleading, I think. So I don't think it's the best name, for one. And then mindfulness refers more to present-centered attention with a kind of open and affectionate Attention, And that's that's beautiful, you know, but it's different than actual presence, which is awareness of being, I would say. So there's a distinction there that um, most mindfulness teachings don't make as well. And thirdly, uh, and this is true, I think, of any meditative practice, it can be pitched to the Western practical mind for health reasons and business efficiency and cognitive functioning and so on. All of which are true, by the way, you know. And And helpful. And helpful. Beneficial, overlooking, actually, the subtler and more important um, uh, dimension of what it's about, which is really to discover who we really are and live from that.
1: You you just said uh, presence being an awareness of being. That's right. Now, unpack that phrase, awareness of being. What, what the heck is awareness of being?
2: <laughs> well... Um, in order to be aware of anything, uh, you know, usually we're aware of, uh, when we speak of what we're aware of, uh, the contents of awareness are our thoughts, our feelings, and sensations. So, you know, the lights in the room, the sound, the feeling of our body, whatever we're thinking and feeling. In order for that to happen, there has to be some awareness, right? That, that awareness itself is generally overlooked, You know, it's, it's, we can't find it. We can't objectify it. We can't name it. So the mind just can't be
1: bottled. It can't be bottled. (laughs) It it. can't
2: be commodified. And the mind basically says, well, there's nothing there. It's, (laughs) it's no thing. Well, it's kind of true that it's no thing. It's no thing, but it's here and overlooked. As attention actually begins to turn back away from the contents of awareness to awareness itself, something begins to happen. This background awareness begins to light up. We become aware of awareness. We become aware of being. Not being anyone or anything, not aware of something, but just a being itself, aware of awareness. And as this awareness of awareness, (laughs) words are kind of a little clumsy, um, you know, uh, grows, there's a greater sense of presence as well. And that's different than present-focused or present-centered attention.
1: I'm here with John J. Prendegas, and he's the author of In Touch, How to Tune into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. John J. Prendergast, and he's the author of In Touch, How to Tune Into the Inner Guidance of Your Body and Trust Yourself. And John, you mentioned at some point um, something about non-duality thinking or or that there there's a whole uh, body of uh, wisdom called uh-huh. non-duality. Uh-huh. And um, some uh, call it avada Advaita. Vedanta, Advaita, Vedanta, 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 mm-hmm. and others, other, mm-hmm. other things, but it's kind of in the in the culture, mm-hmm. and um, one of the ways that people describe this is, um, I am, I am not my body, I am not my thoughts, and they and that becomes their. Ground of being, so to speak, that becomes their practice. I am not any of this, mm-hmm. and and therefore I am I am outside of that, and so I beyond I everything. Beyond, I I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. about what's going on because it's all an illusion. Oh yeah. What would you have to say about that?
2: Um, I, I would say that's a a partial understanding, an incomplete understanding, and so the traditional teachings um, of this uh, school. Um, of non-duality is Advaita Vedanta. It comes out of Vedanta, which means the end of knowledge in uh, Sanskrit. And as you suggested, one of the main um, practices is is a, um, a self-inquiry and of disidentification. It's like everything you've taken yourself to be to realize you're not. And this is very liberating and very freeing because, you know, it's great to be out of our stories and out of our self-images. We feel, you know... When we're free of our self-consciousness, we're you know we, we feel a tremendous sense of space and freedom. One of the difficulties of this teaching, though, is that people can use it to dis- dissociate or distance from their human experience. So if they have uncomfortable feelings, you know, or troublesome thoughts, they'll just say, "That's not me," and instead of actually being seen through and worked through, they're simply repressed or suppressed, at least temporarily, and. Um, you know, it always, this has uh, been called spiritual bypassing, which I prefer to call uh, mental or conceptual bypassing. Um, but uh, it leaves behind a lot of human experience in order to have a sense, a taste of the transcendent. So um, there, is, there is actually value. And uh, I, I would just add the word, I'm not just this body. I'm not mm. just my feelings. I'm not just these thoughts. So the I, big
1: word is just. So, yeah,
2: I am this and I'm so much more unimaginably more. Uh-huh. And and this inquiry can go very deeply and allow us to touch a sense of infinitude, actually, just pure openness and pure spaciousness. But this is really the first step of another process, which is to realize that everything, our thoughts, our feelings, our body, are an expression, actually, of this pure openness and so, pure awareness. So
1: these dark thoughts, I know that you've talked about these as being allies. Potentially, potentially if we if we
2: inquire into them. So, say for instance, we have the thought, "I'm not enough," right? And therefore, you know, the result of that is a feeling of deficiency, and so we sell our short, self-short in relationships, and we hold ourselves back in work, and we just feel small and deficient. So, um, if we actually focus attention there and inquire deeply, we'll discover it's not true. And so they become potential allies. They're like pointers, little wake-up invitations to inquire into, and we discover actually our fullness. So if mm-hmm. we open to our apparent emptiness, we discover fullness. If we explore these apparent contractions, you know, emotion, difficult emotions like guilt or shame or fear or anger, if we go deeply enough into it, we find something actually essential and pure. And so this would be true of our stories as well.
1: You know, going back into that that place that you just described, where we really are bigger than
2: unimaginably
1: unimaginably big, and right. you describe a moment in your life when you it you really embodied this. It mm-hmm. really came to you, yeah. and you were in a prehistoric neolithic cave in oh, france yes, right so can you describe that uh, that moment
2: yeah well i was um uh, my wife is french and so i go back every couple of years to visit france and as you know there are some uh, Lascaux. you know they have these caves of prehistoric paintings and cave paintings and i love them and i i just something is just compelling about seeing these underground this underground art and so I guess it was about five years ago and um, we went to a, one of these caves and, and they're very dark once you get down in there and just very little lighting and, and uh, the guide said, be sure to stay close. And anyway, I just wanted to be quiet and by myself. So the group left and I stayed in the dark and it was so interesting because it's utterly silent. Like there is not a single sound and there's no light, Right. And in that silence, and in that darkness, and there's such a sense of ground because you're just in the earth, you know, you're under the earth. That um, it was very clear that that silence, that darkness, that ground, was as much in me as around me. That there was no separation at all from that. There was a sense of tremendous. Um, See words are starting to yes. you know fall away. Um, tremendous intimacy um, with life, you know, a profound sense of oneness. I would say with all of life,
1: and I, I, I feel like um, yet yeah, oneness, a connectedness in some ways. That's right. uh, that it, it just non. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe part partly because. It, being in such profound darkness, we can't see our separateness. We can't see our hands or our body or, mm-hmm. or you know, there's no light at all there. So, yeah, and this we're un- in the earth. I, I, I just You think, got a feel for it. It uh, yeah, was interesting. I, I could I see I that you did. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I, I
2: mean, this is what I think, you know, John Lillian is, you know, sensory deprivation and so on. You're floating in a dark, you know, samadhi tank and so on. That, you know, it has a tendency when, the, when you, you do have that sensory deprivation. If you're relaxed, you know, and open, um, you know, these kind of uh, experiences are more uh, available. But for me, it's not so much about having the big experience like that, mm-hmm. for me, it's 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 not so dramatic generally, mm-hmm. right? It's much more actually ordinary, and and for me, it's like the feeling of ordinary life becoming sacred. You know, it's not fireworks; it's just a an intimacy, a sense of non-separateness with the most ordinary aspects of life.
1: Well, you talk about that—the sacred in the ordinary—and mm-hmm. I and I know that you end your book uh, with with a couple of th- well. Uh, about the the ten ox herding mm-hmm. paintings, mm-hmm. And, and it also reminds me of that uh, the T. S. Eliot, and you use his quote in uh-huh. your book uh, uh, from his po- poems, the Four Quartets, yes, and the profound, profound line where he he talks about we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive. Where we started and to know the place for the first time. Yes, that's so profound. I was so glad you brought that up in your book, and 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 it, it's that's what it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's like we go out into the marketplace and we discover all this stuff, and we go through our angst and we do everything, and then there might, if we've if we're diligent or if we're graced, mm-hmm. uh, we mm-hmm. come. back. Home, yes, to hear to hear right now and and see it like for
2: the first time, for
1: the first time, like being in that cave in the darkness,
2: that's right, yeah, and this time in the light, and this time in a conversation, right, 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 it's all here all the time, that which we've been seeking, yeah, unseen, unknown, until it is,
1: and I know it's important that. We know ourselves in order to truly be intimate with others that's correct, and you've you've mentioned that, and' so how, true. Like, to
2: be at home in ourself, right? where we're not where we feel our own fullness, then we're not subtly or not so subtly controlling and manipulating others to show up in the way we need we think we need in order to feel full or safe. So we give that freedom then to others, and it's it's a life of generosity then. Uh, a life of real offering and of service. Then, when we discover that fullness, um, and when we're at home in ourself, then I think we can spontaneously be of most service to others as well. And we're drawn to. It's just. It's like. What else are we here to do? But to share, to serve, to create, you know, to love, to live wisely. Mm. Yeah.
1: And I know you gave me a, a tremendous gift in the reading of your book at some point. Just on that particular point, I just started to do all this journal writing when I really could acknowledge on a whole new level how uh, living with a very dynamic man for forty one years, my husband who uh-huh. Michael, who has passed away, uh-huh. living with him for forty one years and doing this work together, I could see, you know a whole new level of where I, I gave myself up to merge with him. Yes Now there's a whole new level of coming into to my myself. Yes. So if I, that was a gift that I want to thank you oh, for you're so you know welcome. I mean there it's level after level. I mean That's we, right. it's it, it, a, almost it, like con- we never arrived quite to there. It's a
2: continual discovery and unfolding yeah even as we feel ourselves increasingly at home. In yes. ourselves. But that's right. When we're we're partnered or have a friend who's very dynamic, there's a tendency to merge, you know, and then there's a process of demerging right. a- and and coming home to ourself.
1: John, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions.
2: It's been a real pleasure, Justine.
1: Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. John J. Prendergast, and he's the author of In Touch, How to Tune Into the Inner guidance of your body and trust yourself. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, listeningfromsilence.com. Or you can give there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine willis Tom's. You've been listening to New Dimensions. Okay. This is program number 3563.